Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, let's get down to business. Gary Player, born the 1st of November 1935 mm-hmm. in Johannesburg, South Africa. Tell us about your childhood and growing up in South Africa. I can't imagine South Africa in 1935, Gary. <laughs> well, first of all, let me just say something. How I enjoyed that introduction. So, Winston Churchill was my great hero. Uh, and it's hard to believe that a man, after all the leadership and difficulties that he encountered, that he came back and lost the election. So it shows you that old saying, you know, what have I done for him lately? You know, it doesn't really, it applies, you know. Well, why does he hate me? What have I done for him lately? Although, but, although it is fair to say that Clement Attlee won that uh, that uh, election. And I, I think we're, we're talking more about Sir Winston Churchill than we are about Clement Attlee in the present day. So uh, yes. these things have a way of, of, of correcting themselves over time. Yes, they do. And also Jim Clark, I used to watch him because I'm a farmer and he was a farmer. So I watched him, but that was really neat. Uh, yes, growing up in South Africa, uh, was a great privilege. Uh, South Africa is the most magnificent country, the best beaches in the world, the most beautiful game reserves, incredible climate, wonderful people, a real rainbow nation, and a country that was uh, highly educated. I can't say that amongst, amongst everybody, but there's no country where they're entirely educated. But I went to a school called King Edward VII School, and uh, it was, for me, the making of me because my mother died when I was very young at eight years of age. I had to travel an hour and a half to school, hour and a half back, but I had to stand up in the classroom. It was a school, would you believe it, Danny? We still sung God Save the King. And uh, when the queen, the present queen, and her parents came by our school, we all went out in the street. We all took our hats off and waved to see her and the, the King George the Sixth and his wife and then the two daughters, which is the present Queen and Margaret. And it was a great thrill. And I saw her at Royal Ascot this year, and I was so pleased to see her horse win the race. Uh, you know, as a South African, uh, I have great admiration for, for royalty. I should say as well that, of course, um, as well as you're in parallel with your amazing career in both uh, the main tour and seniors golf, you're also one of the leading horse breeders in uh, in South Africa. And so, uh, in fact, we had to delay the start of this program, but I'm telling the truth, because <laughs> Gary had to phone back and listen to a race on his telephone. Your horse didn't win, unfortunately, on this occasion. <laughs> it didn't win today. Yesterday, we had a good winner there. Your, your dad, um, there's a tendency among people of my age to think about South Africa in, 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 in pre 
apartheid or joining the apartheid as being all rich white people and poor black people. But of course, you came from very humble roots. Your father was a miner. Very much so. He worked 10,000 feet underground, never made more than 10,000 feet? Can you imagine that? Never made more than 100 pounds a month in his life. Spoke three black languages fluently. He spoke Afrikaans and English and a little bit of Portuguese. And when Arnold Palmer came out to South Africa, uh, I had he and his family come down the mine with me. And what an experience it was for him to see how people worked under those conditions in those days. And was then this we, a, was this a, What kind of mine was it? A gold mine. A gold, of course, a classic South African gold mine. And you yeah. know, Danny, you'd go down X amount of feet, you'd get off, and there was this hole in the rock, and you'd go down further. I mean, I get claustrophobia when I just think about it. And when we came up, we went into a room where there were billions of dollars of gold being poured, and these gold bars were on the table. And this one man said, anybody who can pick this up can have it. Well, Arnold Palmer, who had the strongest hands I ever saw, said, ask him if I can have it too. <laughs> so I said, I've got a friend here. I can said, I've already got enough money. <laughs> <laughs> and Arnold picked it up. This guy got such a fright. He said, Mr. Palmer, I only work here. Palmer said, you did work here. You fired. This is mine. <laughs> what were your interests as a child growing up? Um, were you interested in school or sport? What were your interests? Well, at King Edward VII School, they had, it was really, I think, one of the great schools of the world. You had swimming pool. You had an Olympic pool. You had football fields, which which was, you know, we call it football like yeah. you call soccer football. Yeah. In the preparatory school, I captain the football team. And then you go to high school, you then play rugby, cricket, athletics, swimming, debating, physical training. The most marvelous school, high standard of education, teaching you to read, which is something that is dying with young people today. And so I was so blessed. My father didn't have much money, but it was a public school. And for really under five pounds a year, I could go to the school, and thank goodness. And how did you get into golf? My father played on the mine. When you were an employee on the mine, you got to play at a golf course uh, for something like 20 pounds a year, a very, very nice golf course. He invited me to play. I said, no, not for me. Eventually, I succumbed, went out and played. The bug got me, and thank goodness, because I don't know what I would have done without golf in my life. I would say as well that there's another uh, link in your life with the golf in that uh, as a teenager of 14, if I got this right, you met the woman who is still your wife 56 years later, you say you've been married, <laughs> Vivian, but there's a golf connection there as well. Danny, people uh, think I'm uh, crazy when I say this. I lived in a very poor neighborhood, and the wall separating my neighbor and myself, there was an Englishman living next door to me, and my brother said to me, come and look at this little girl next door. So I stood on a rock, looked over the wall, saw her, and I said, you know, Christopher, I'm going to marry that girl. He said, are you crazy? You've just seen her for a second. You tell me you're going to marry her. Well, I did. <laughs> you're a pretty determined guy, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know whether that's coincidence or what, but, uh, you know, golf has enabled me to travel actually more miles probably than any human being ever, not athlete. I mean, I've been doing this for 60 years. Think about that. Living in an airplane for 60 years, designing golf courses all over the world, representing companies, playing in tournaments, uh, raising a lot of money, over $50 million for underprivileged children in the four quadrants of the world. Uh, golf, and, and what an education. Can you imagine I've had dinner or played golf or been in the Oval Office with every president for the last 50 years, uh, prime ministers, royal family, the emirs in the Middle East, but also 
the poor people of India and the villages and in Africa where I learned as much from those humble people as I did from these great leaders. Gary, you uh, you turned professional at the age of 17 back in 1953. Um, an easy decision to make? Were you ever going to do anything else except be a professional golfer? Uh, I did excel at sports at King Edward and played first team cricket and rugby and did hurdles in the swimming and I won the trophy for the best all-rounder prior to my final year. And my mother, before dying, she said, please make sure that Gary gets the best of educations. And I went to my father and I said, Dad, I'm going to turn pro. He said, you can't turn pro. It's 17. There's no money. What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? I said, Dad, listen to me. I'll be the champion because I'll outwork everybody. Nobody will hit ever. And it's true. Nobody ever has hit as many balls as I have. Now, Vijay Singh might pass me if he lives as long as I do. But I hit more balls than anybody. And I knew you get that inner sense. You know what you can do. And I knew I was going to work hard. And I was always very positive that I'd be a world champion. But you can't blame my father for just saying, oh, he was perturbed. Well, just, just as well as the hard work, we should mention it here because we're now so used in the post-Woods era, uh, post-Tiger being the muscle uh, sort of a proper athlete that he turned out. And, uh, no, everyone's caught up with him now. Lots of people, not sure quite all of them, but for most of them are very, very fit men. Um, you were legendary, Gary, um, in your era of golf as being the fittest. I mean, you've, as you, you sit in front of me now, a man of a certain age, looking uh, like, like you could uh, go out and jogging now. You've, you've lived in a gymnasium, haven't you? Well, I'm 78 years of age now, and I still do 1,200 sit-ups uh, four times a week. I still squat with 250 pounds. I still average at my age 70 when I play golf. I work on my farm with all my staff. I don't ask any of my staff to mix cement or carry rocks. He's, or showing, me, he's showing me on that famous right hand. <laughs> he's showing me a very black thumbnail from manual labor. And without boasting, Danny, I think that uh, I could beat if you if you took a thousand young people at random off the street at 30, I'd kill them in the gymnasium at 78. And, and you still average 70 on proper golf courses. Yes, I averaged 70, and I played in a few tournaments this year, and I was under 70, shot 68 average. So I can still play well. I enjoy it. I represent a lot of companies. I travel extensively. I work on my farm, very busy, raise a lot of money for underprivileged children. We've raised over $50 million. We had a day at Wentworth the other day, raised $100,000 for the hospice children for Berenberg Bank. And go to China, we raised 12 a million RMB, South Africa, raised a lot of money. And I had the great privilege of my life with uh, our great president, uh, Nelson Mandela, to work with him. And we raised almost 30 million rand for underprivileged young black children. And I want to tell you what a man to go to jail for all that length of time for doing the right thing, not the wrong thing. And you sit there with him and I questioned him and he said, you never have revenge. You never have hatred in your heart. You only have love in your heart and you forgive. And this is typical of... Uh, a man like Mahatma Gandhi or a man like Martin Luther King. And I think the greatest living statesman on the planet today is Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore. And these are all their principles that they abide by. So you learn more from people like that than the great militants of the world. Oh, we might come back to Nelson Mandela a, a little later on. Let's, let's get into uh, your golf career. And I know you, uh, when you started out, you were giving people lessons at a, a dollar a go. I hope there are still people alive in South Africa who said I was taught by Gary Player for a dollar. Um, 
before we get into the actual tournaments, we should make the point that uh, you, you're you often given the credit, yourself, Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus, for making golf the global game that it is today, but that you actually, in some ways you could say you were slightly fortunate as well, in that American television had just caught on in the late 50s, early 60s, to mm. the fact that this was an amazing game in a little box, hadn't they? Absolutely, and Mark McCormack, who is IMG, he was the genius of all sports managers, and he brought this all to the fore, and he signs up his first three players, Arnold Palmer, Gary Player, and Jack Nicholas. Later, he signed up the Pope, Twiggy, uh, Pele, and all these people. Became... I-, I worked for him as well, but I don't yeah. think at the same level. I'll be truthful. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, and the golf did come to the fore with the television, and what Arnold, Jack, and I did, I mean, a man like Tiger, it's fine. He gets, you know, two, three million dollars to appear in another country, for appearances, we we did it for ten thousand and twenty thousand dollars. We traveled the world extensively because we loved people, we loved playing golf, we loved promoting, we loved working with juniors, and I tell you, it was a special time in my life. And you were pretty quickly successful. You uh, went to your first major in this country at Hoylake in 1956, finished fourth. Mm-hmm. Um, you joined the PGA in the USA in 1957. You won the first tournament. I'll just help people with that. The Kentucky Derby Open in April mm. of 1958. I'm rushing through these. You were clearly in great form in 58 because you were second at the US Open, seventh at the Open here at Royal Lydum St. Anne's. And the first, and I'm sorry I'm rushing through this, people, but we've got nine majors, never mind all the senior majors, mm-hmm. we've got nine majors to get through. The first one that comes your way comes, I think ironically, given that what we just happened, we just seen happen to Phil Mickelson, in 1959, here in, here in Scotland, rather, um, at Muirfield. Um, a different world then, 90 players took part, you won the tournament, only three Americans in the field. Yes, uh, first of all, I arrived early because the Open Championship of Britain is always the most important tournament in my life and still is today. And I arrived 10 days early and I go into Muirfield and the secretary's there, Colonel Evans Loam was his name. He said, what are you doing here, young chap? I said, I've come to practice. He said, you're not practicing here. This is a private club. <laughs> well, I virtually went on my hands and knees and I eventually befriended him and he permitted me to practice there and was the most diligent practice I ever did and went on to win. And, you know, with those lousy golf balls and with those that inferior equipment and fairways which were not were cut short and no rakes and bunkers to the extent today, I shot three shots worse than Phil Mickelson just shot this last week. And I played the last day in a 30-mile-an-hour wind. Uh, you, you, the, your last round was four under par despite the wind. And had a double bogey on the last hole. I needed four for 66. So I, I walked around the other day and I said, how did I do it? But I did. Tell me how it felt to win a first, a first major. I was so excited that I went back to the hotel prior to others finishing, put on a white suit, and they had all the chairs and tables set out for the presentation. And I got there half an hour early. My grandfather Ferguson came from Glasgow. My father's side were from from England here, and I sat there and I just said a little prayer of thanks and just reveled at the beautiful Scottish countryside and how blessed I was to be the youngest man to win the greatest championship in the world. You were the youngest then, were you still are? No, Ballesteros beat Absolutely, me by just a little bit, so I'm the second youngest. Well, you've got a 
enough individual credits coming up in this show not to worry about losing one, perhaps. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I'm now giving up trying to follow my own ideas of how this might go because you're such an interesting talker. Let us just go where we want to go. Mm. You talk there about diligence in preparation for the for the Open. It happens on a Lynx course. They're an unusual course. What did you make recently of Rory McIlroy, who we all adore in this country, yes. of Rory just pitching up having not touched a golf ball for three de- for three weeks, I think? Well, I love Rory, uh, and he's got such talent, you can't believe it. And I got quite perturbed. I see him win the U.S. Open, and the next tournament he plays is one month later, uh, the Open Championship. You can't do that, Danny. You've got to, What he should have done was taken a, a week off after winning the U.S. Open to settle down and then play two tournaments in a row, then come into the Open. And you've just got to prepare properly. And so... And he has a few problems at this stage of his life, but everybody has problems. It's God's plan for everybody to live with problems. There's no utopia. Everybody has a problem of some kind. He'll sort it out. He'll come back. He's got wonderful parents. He's got great talent. He's got to sort out his managerial affairs. He's got to sort out his love affairs. You know, when you're in love as a young man, naturally golf seems to take second place for a while, and that's natural. Love is still the greatest thing that ever happened in our lives. He'll come back strong. Okay, well, that's uh, that was your your first major uh, at Muirfield, and very not not so quickly. Perhaps you were very close in 1960 once again. Um, sixth at the Masters, seventh at the U.S. Open. Um, you won your second major. Um, and the, again, a very unique tournament um, in, in that you won the Masters in 1961. Um, tell me about that tournament, because I, th- I think I think um, you didn't have a great last round. You shot 74, but mm-hmm. Arnold Palmer managed to. Is it fair to say that he handed it to you? Is that or is that too much? To well, say? I don't know about those sayings handed it to you, but anyway, uh, what actually happened? I was leading by four. Now I'm playing in the Masters, and I'm a young man, and there are 30,000 people there. And they're all the only people pulling for me are my wife and my dog, and uh, they're all. The dog wasn't sure. (laughs) They're they're all screaming and carry on and going wild about Arnold Palmer, and really it was a very unfortunate thing. At the thirteenth hole, I hit the ball in the trees on the right, and I had a perfect gap to go down fourteen fairway and then onto the green with a little wedge. I couldn't get the people to move. Now, if Tiger or Arnold or Jack sat there, they wouldn't play until they moved. But being a young man from South Africa and feeling a little out of place, I decided, and I was impatient, I'd try to chip out of the trees, and I chipped into the creek right here next to me. So that was just a matter of, uh, you know, embarrassment or whatever it was. Anyway, I shot 74. Arnold came to the last hole and double bogeyed it, and I went on to win. But then the next year... I had Arnold Palmer by two shots with three holes to go. And at the 16th hole, I put my tee shot 10 foot from the hole. He was 70 foot from the hole. He holed that across the green with a big swing. The next hole, he hooked it in the trees, knocked it on the front edge of the green, knocked that in. We tied. We went into an 18-hole playoff. I was out in 33. The 10th hole, he hit a wicked shot to the right, holed it across the green and went on to beat me. So I suppose these things even out. They do even out, but you've won your second majors there, the Masters in 61. Um, There's a million things I want to ask you. But don't forget, when you win that, you now have dinner with President Eisenhower. And and what a thrill that is to to meet this great president. Uh, And it's an evening that one never forgets. And to be the first foreigner, I hate the word foreigner. I think we're all part of this planet. 
I think we're far too nationalistic in this world. And anyway, I'm the first foreigner, so to speak, to win the, uh, the Masters. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Gary, we, 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 I'm going to accelerate along here because um, we're heading to one of the great feats in, in world sport in just a few minutes' time. Um, in 1962, you didn't win the three-way playoff for the Masters, um, led by three, but things didn't go your way. Um, but you did win the PGA that year. Out of a course that I'm not very aware of, is it called Aronimink? Is that how you pronounce it? It's called Aronimink, and it's in uh, Pennsylvania. And it's strange, I played in the Open Championship at Troon and I hit my ball a half an inch out of bounds on the last hole and missed the cut by one. And I got on a plane immediately and I went back to Philadelphia and practiced twice as hard and went on to win the PGA. So leaving with my tail between my legs, the next week I felt like a king. And, uh, you know, you, you really are, uh, I don't need to tell you this, and we'll come on to what, what this has proven in 1965, by these early to mid-60s, um, and people talk about yourself and, and uh, Nick Klaus and, uh, and Arnold Palmer, you really are a fantastically consistent player as well. I noticed in 63 you were in the top 10 in all four of the majors, mm-hmm. perhaps giving us an indication of where we're going. But it's 1965, if, you, if I may jump forward to that, you could argue that it is a... Uh, your miracle year, if you like, um, you win the Masters. Is that right? You won the Masters. Uh, finished. Um, let me let me ask. Uh, no, 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 sorry. You no. no, no, that's right. You finished second in the Masters behind Jack Nicklaus, yes. who won by nine shots. So let me just have a very brief word about Nicklaus here. At the time you were in this kind of form and winning these trophies, were you as good a player of, as Nicklaus, or just behind him, in your opinion? You know, I was never scared of playing Nicholas, and he knows that. In fact, he, he and I are great friends, and he said, you were the only one that wasn't scared of beating me. I never felt he was better than me. I played him head-to-head in the World Match Play Championship in London here at Wentworth. In the final, I beat him 6-4. and four. The next time I played him, I beat him 5-4. and four. We played matches in South Africa, 10 matches I ate him up alive. We went to Australia, played a series of matches. I beat him. I won more Australian Opens than he won. But in America, obviously, they are... 
very one-sided, and the fact that he won more majors than me, yes, they they just make him the king. But I never played in all those majors, and I had to go home to my family. I missed the PGA on many occasions. Absolutely. And I was flying ten thousand miles there and back, and being away from my family, and he could go home every week. No, I never felt he was better than me. But I mean, Americans would laugh at me and say that. But I. I won more tournaments than he did around the world. And to me, I wanted to be the best golfer in the world. And my world record is the best in the world. And that was my ambition. Arnold Palmer, people in America, and he's an icon. And I adore Arnold Palmer. And he's done so much for golf. But I won more I won more money than he did on the regular tour, more money than he won on the senior tour. I won more majors than he won on the regular tour, more majors than the senior tour. I won majors for 20 years. He won for six. And I won more tournaments than him total. And they always rank him above me. Well, uh, at least you put that straight for us. Thank you very much mm-hmm. indeed. I'd say 1965 then, you win the US Open uh, for the first time. I mean, it's already remarkable the amount of majors you're clocking up. But the real issue here is that the Grand Slam of golf, having won all four of the majors, not only are you only the third human being ever to have done that by that stage, two more have done it since, mm-hmm. but you're 29 years of age <laughs> and you've won everything the golf world can put in front of you. Well, I must give Nicholas uh, a bit of credit. He said to me, you've got to come and practice with me. You want to win the Grand Slam. And I said to him, yeah, Jack, I want to I want to beat you to the winning of the Grand Slam. And he convinced me to go and practice instead of going to another tournament at Greensboro. Anyway, I win the tournament. I'm 29 years of age, and I say to myself, well, nobody will ever do that again, 29. Would you believe it? Nicholas comes along and wins it at 26. Now, Tiger Woods comes along and wins it at 24. Incredible. Greatest effort, greatest achievement ever achieved in golf. Second greatest achievement I've ever seen. A boy of 14 years of age from China playing in the Masters this year. I thought he'd shoot 90-90. And he makes the cut with the most cruel penalty shot I've ever seen in golf. When scandalous. Others, absolutely scandalous. scandalous. All other players, Tiger Woods, uh, or I can name you five people that were over there a lot of times. None of them penalized. Nobody's been penalized for 10 years. And a 14-year-old boy, which is creating world history, I tell you what, it would have been a chaotic situation with China and the rest of the world. And he accepts the penalty like a man of 80 years of age, makes the cut in spite of the penalty. But the thing is, he goes on and he plays another tournament, an American PGA tournament the following week in in, uh, New Orleans, and makes the cut again. This is beyond one's imagination. I mean, it's a miracle. Listen, why why don't we travel back in time? And let's hear this brief report about the historic win at the US Open in 1965, which sees you then the youngest person ever to have done the legendary, indeed mythical, golf Grand Slam. The US Open goes into overtime as Gary Player drives in the playoff round. The South African tied with an Australian in the regulation tourney, Kel Nagel, and this 18 holes will tell the story. Which one will be the first foreigner to win this title in 45 years? Player is five strokes ahead after eight holes, and from there, it's a breeze. Player makes history in more ways than one. He announces that he is donating his purse to the U.S. Golf Association, 5000 to be given to cancer research, and the rest to develop junior golfers. He's that happy in capturing a title that has long eluded him. Now he joins Gene Sarazen and Ben Hogan as the only golfers to win the U.S. and British Open, the U.S. Pro Crown, and the Masters. 
You've uh, you've got a slight moistness in your eye there, Gary. I tell you what, I've got goose pimples here listening to that because uh, it brings one word to my mind, and that is gratitude. And I'm very proud, you know. I have respect for everybody's uh, rights in life, whatever they may be, whether it's religion or weight or uh, whatever they believe in. Thanks. And all I can say is that I get on my hands and knees every day of my life. I never miss a day, a day. Or I don't get on my knees and say thank you for everything, my blessings, my difficulties, and the blessings that you've um, you know put upon me. I so I want to uh, again. We heard there that you gave the winnings to charity, but there was another side to this as well. I think we should have a discussion about. Um, there were people who were protesting uh, about about you as well, because you're obviously a very high profile individual mm. in the world by the stage. Never mind the world of sport, people, because you they, you had come. Um, not to represent, but to represent South Africa and the apartheid regime. And you mm-hmm. had said something, I think, um, in the build-up. You said, "I am uh, of the uh, of the South Africa, uh, Africa of ver- the ver world and apartheid." Because mm-hmm. you were. I mean, there's nothing you could do. You can't yeah. deny who and what you are. How no. did you feel about the way that was being used uh, uh, against you, if you like? It was it was unfair because I certainly didn't invent the apartheid system, and you were you were a system of it. There, you can't deny it. And even though my father taught me it was a very, very bad system, and during the times of apartheid, I sponsored uh, four, at least four tournaments for our black golfers to play in 100,000 each tournament. I sponsored at least five golfers, uh, black golfers, to go over to Australia and to Britain. So I was combating it to the best of my ability. But you've got to understand, in those days, it was like living in Germany. I mean, this was you, you started standing up and getting too tough. They just put you away and put you in jail, even put you away permanently. So it was very difficult times to live under. But uh, I, I feel that I'm quite happy that I did my share in those times of apartheid. Yeah, and ju- I just asked you because I say... No, you, any question you no, like, no, no, you can no, ask no, me. No, no, absolutely. But it was just a... I think all high-profile white South Africans were being... Uh, you know, the, the system had to be dismantled. And, of course, the, the sporting boycott, I believe, was a great pressure on the old regime and all the rest of it. But if you were successful outside of South Africa, people automatically... Uh, you became a target for that kind of thing. Yes, and when I played in the PGA, which people very quickly forget about it uh, I played at uh, Dayton Ohio they were throwing ice in my eyes they were throwing telephone books in my back at the top of my backswing they were charging me on the greens they were throwing balls between my legs they were screaming on my backswing and I lost the PGA which is a, one of the four majors by one shot so you know I, I had a lot of difficulties they were two years they wanting to kill me all the time but I didn't run home, and then I eventually went and met the Black Panthers, and I said, look, send a representative of yours to South Africa. And he came out, and he went and met the caddies and went to the clubs, and they said, Gary's our friend. He's not our enemy. And I came back, and I never had another trouble. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Unbelievable. You actually yeah. took the Black Panther yes, representation. Yes, to Mr. South- Williams was his name. Okay. Yeah. Well, I thought I'd done a lot of research for this piece. I didn't know that. That's, that's <laughs> fascinating. Gary, after that 65 success in the US Open, which saw, saw you win all four golf majors, um, I suppose, as always, everyone thinks, right, he's going to win all of them for, uh, upcoming. <laughs> we all do. We make the same mistake every time. And it was another three years before you won another major. <laughs> yes, another major, but I did Pretty continue. close. You were four, fourth, fourth. I'm looking at the record here. Fourth, third, 
third, sixth, seventh, but you didn't win another major. But yeah. you're still in good form, or it's just a matter of luck? Still in good form, and any time you finish in the top five, you're obviously close to winning. But I did go on and win a lot of tournaments in the rest of the world at that time. Let me ask you a couple of questions before we come on to your next major open, then. Um, the, the Black Knight, uh, as you were called, I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it, it takes too much imagination. Why did you always play in all black clothing? Or well, did you always play in all black clothing? I did. Uh, yeah. My father was a miner and had no education, but he said something, you must have a brand. And then my son, who manages my business, said, Dad, a brand. He says, you know, if you look at some of the brands that exist today, Chanel, those people are dead, long gone, but they still continue on generating income for their families. So I thought about it, and there was a movie called Have Gun, Will Travel in America with Jack Paladin, always dressed in black, silver holster, always gave a card to somebody who was in trouble to help them. And I thought, wow, I like this, and I'm from black Africa, so what better thing could I do than to be the black knight? And they had a knight, you know, the old armor that yes. they put on the... like a helmet, And yeah. then my yeah. son changed it to a flowing black knight, and it's been a very, very popular brand. And during that period where you were still very much in contention all the time, um, our old friend Jack Nicklaus um, actually uh, has to over... He does win three uh, majors and overtakes uh, your record of majors. And, of course, you know, we talked about Nicklaus earlier on. Whatever about how good a bad player he was, his record in majors is... Well, until Woods came along, you just thought it'll never be touched. And it might not ever be touched. It looks uh, like it might it's not It's the now. best. And you've got to remember this. If you put the shoe on the other foot, let's say that... Tiger had 18 majors and Jack was coming along. You set the bar. I know that Jack would have won more than 18 because he was that kind of personality. So it's fortunate for Tiger that he says, Jack's won 18, that's what I've got to do. So it's all a mindset, obviously. But I'll tell you what, Tiger's going to have to really go. Now, Tiger is so talented, but he's got to win five major championships, which was... Ballesteros' his entire career yeah. to surpass Nicholas. Will he do it or not? If anybody's capable of doing it, it's Tiger Woods. Will he do it? Nobody knows. It occurred to me the other day as I was watching the, the, the denouement of, of their own Open that if you put Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson together, they still only equaled what Nicholas did. So uh, we are talking about one of the Giants. You come back and then win again here in this, in, in this country in Carnoustie in 1968. What's your memory of that tournament? Carnoustie is the toughest open venue and I was not playing very well and I went out one night after dinner at 9.30 and just hit a few balls on the practice tee and just found something uh, on the spur of the moment and, and went on to win. And I remember vividly coming down the last round on the 14th hole, the spectacles at it's because it has two big bunkers mm -hmm. that look at you. There were five of us within one stroke. I'm playing with Nicholas, Bob Charles, Morris Bembridge, Billy Casper, the five of us within one shot. The wind's whipping up, and I take a three-wood, and I see it fluttering in the breeze, and I hit this shot. It went so straight for the flag. I had to lean over sideways to see the flag. Ends up eight inches from the hole, two shots ahead of Nicholas. Come to the last hole, two shots ahead of him, unlike Van der Velva. I took an iron off the tee. I took another iron and on the green and got my par. Now, Van der Velva, having a three-shot lead with one hole to go, should have hit a five iron off the tee, a six iron for his second shot, get on the green, make a bogey, even a double bogey, and he wins. But it was Viva la Francais.
Okay, well, we've we've seen this more recently. I mean, with the other the other uh, what was the, the Frenchman's name ended up swimming around in the, in the in the creek. He just wouldn't play the simple shot. Um, you that was your fifth major, and in the early seventies, um, seventy seventy one, you're in great form. You're having big wins, but to the already difficulty of the of the of the field is added a new uh, name. I might say Lee Trevino, um, a different kind of golfer. I mean, you could argue one of the first modern golfers. He was all personality when he arrived, and but people forget he won six majors. This was a major force and an opponent for you as well. Very much so, and I've always said it was much harder for Nicholas to win majors than Tiger. You had so many players in Nicholas's time that won five and six. Raymond Floyd, five majors. Trevino, six. Palmer, seven. Me, nine. Billy Casper, three. You could go on and on and on. Nicholas had to play against guys that were really major championship winners. Now, there's a very big difference, Danny, when you're playing and you're leading. There are not many players that know how to lead a major championship and win. There are hundreds of players that can play well on a normal golf tournament, but a handful, there are only about 12 superstars that have lived in the history of the game, and yet people are very quick to say, oh, he's a superstar, he's great. That's not true. It's a very different matter when you're leading. Let's take Lee Westwood, who I love. I love Lee Westwood, and I pull for him so hard, and I pulled for him so hard in the Open Championship. He's had numerous chances to win and has not won. Now, <sighs> If you put my head on Lee's shoulders, he would have won, I promise you, at least five majors by now because I couldn't hit the ball better than Lee Westwood from tee to green. Lee Westwood was the best player from tee to green the last five years. His short game has been suspect, but now his short game has improved and he just played badly on Sunday, which broke my heart. So he's got to change his mind thought. He's got to really sit down and do it himself. What am I doing wrong? I'm doing something wrong, and he's got to work it out. And I meditated a lot and trained my mind how to play under pressure, and that's what he's got to do. Do you think Colin Montgomery was good enough to have won a major? Well, Colin Montgomery did something that was extraordinary. To be the leading money winner eight years in Europe, unbelievable, but never won a major. Had a chance at winged foot. He had a seven iron in his hand. And if he, if he makes a bogey, not a par, he ties with a seven iron in his hand. The pin back right couldn't be better suited for him because he fades the ball in. We were talking about this the other day and gets double bogey. But opportunity only knocks once. Yeah, unfortunately for him. Let's talk about your sixth major then. We've got time to squeeze in in this section, I think. Um, one of Oakland Hills in Michigan um, in 1972. What do you remember about that tournament? Very, very difficult golf course. And uh, I remember coming down the line there. There were five of us within one shot. Sam Sneed also at that time. And I came to the 16th hole and the flag was over this lake, over the willow trees, five foot just over the water. And I hit this nine iron out of the wet rough and I hit it three foot from the hole and went on to win. And they've put a plaque there today. And interestingly enough, a man who was in the gallery when I left rushed out, picked up my divot, took it back home. He had a small garden and sprigged it, took little pieces out and put it in his garden and planted his lawn. And two years later, he sent me a picture and said, my lawn is your divot. Would you like a piece back? <laughs> oh, wonderful. Let's, let me ask you a question, um, because we're talking a lot about golf here, not so much about your life, I mean, because there is so much golf to talk about. Um, 
you're playing all this away from home. Exactly. You've got a very large family. I think you've got a, a house full of kids. Is that fair? Six children so, and 23 grandchildren. Uh, well, let's talk about the six children as well then. How, just give us a flavour of what, uh, in the next couple of minutes, of what your life was like in this, in the, say, in the early 70s. You're a, a, an established superstar of the sport. I use that word advisedly. But it, it, I don't think it's a normal life, is it? How do you live? Danny, this is a very good question because this is what Americans don't want to ever quite give me credit for. That I'm traveling to their country to play against their people all the time. Six children sitting in an aeroplane when we first started. You bring the kids with you? Yes, no jets. Remember, think of that. All sitting in a, in a business, in a tourist class, no jets, flying at 27,000 feet where the storms are, arriving there with six children having to travel in another country. That's tough. And then when they do go home, I'm away from them for two months at a time. These things American players never experienced, but they will never give me credit for playing under those kind of conditions. Well, let me ask you another question that may be equally difficult to answer. We see now lots of players from all over the world. They go and settle in Florida and in California <laughs> in order to play the American tour. Why did you not want to leave South Africa? Maybe because I was such a uh, staunch South African I don't know. I think I was very proud of South Africa. I loved my country. Wonderful people. Terrible system in apartheid, but I loved our people. And I just felt I, I was representing my country around the world, and I was proud to do it. But again, I, I look back now and say, well, I don't believe in being too nationalistic. I believe in being pl the planet. We should be representing the planet because we're all people on the planet. But... Uh, I, I suppose that's the reason. But now you see Westward and, and, and a lot of the fellas going to live in America and play there. That's what I should have done. In fact, I was offered in 1961 by a man called Jack Hawkins, an Irishman, said to me, I'll give you a million dollars a year if you'll come and live in Tennessee, and I'll build you a million dollar home if you'll come and live and be an American citizen. And I turned it down. Had I accepted it, I certainly would have won more majors and I would have had a greater career winning-wise, but would I have had the quality of life that I had in South Africa? I doubt it, because South Africa has a quality of living with climate and beaches and mountains and game reserves and agriculture that is hard to beat. Let me ask you then one last question in this section, about because it returns to South Africa. Tell me the story, please, that you told me off-air about the first time you met Nelson Mandela. <clears throat> first time I met uh, Nelson Mandela was in Johannesburg and I went to meet him and I said to him, how can you not hate the white man after being jail for all these number of years and for doing not the wrong thing but doing the right thing? And he said to me, Gary, there's a green apple on the table. He said, you see this green apple? <clears throat> he says, it's no use being green on the outside and rotten on the inside. You've got to have love for people. You've got to have forgiveness for people. And you must never have revenge. And, you know, I just thought this, and you've got to have love in your heart for people. And love is the most important word that exists in our, in our English dictionary or the Quran or in Hinduism or Judaism, whatever it may be. Love is the crucial word. And I was so impressed. He was sitting there. And in African tradition, people often sit with their shoes off. I took his foot and I kissed the top of his foot and I said, this is how much I admire you. And I've never kissed anybody's feet in my life, but you are a special man. And then we raised between us at least close to 30 million rand for underprivileged black children. And every time I was with him, Every time I had a tear in my eye, I could not. I said, today I won't cry. But when I met him, it went through my mind what he went through. 
and you're too <clears> modest <throat> to mention it, and not, not everyone says you're the most modest man, but you are too modest to mention it. I know that in that conversation, he said that you had said in 1961 when you won one of your tournaments, free Nelson Mandela while he was still at Robin Island. Yes, in 1961, I said in the paper in Cape Town, you've got to free Nelson Mandela. Rod Stewart there, and Forever Young, of course, and a, a tune that you asked us uh, to play because you've got something you want to say about it and about the world. Well, absolutely, a Forever Young by Rod Stewart. I play that all the time when I'm on holiday and when I'm with my family with all 23 grandchildren because I'm 78 now, and really, I, I suppose, really, strictly speaking, I would say I'm 40 years of age because I can still beat most young people in the gym. And it's all in the mind. I mean, I was told when you were young, you were getting old when you're 50, and that's absolutely nonsense. And I was absolutely appalled. A year or two ago, I was reading in the newspaper where people, I can't remember the exact age, I think they were retiring in Britain at 62 years of age, and the government was saying, can't you retire at 64? And there was an outcry. If I had to retire at 64, I'd die. I'm 78. I don't believe in retirement. You've got to keep your body moving. You've got to keep thin. You've got to keep exercising. And you've got to realize you live in this great country of Britain, and you have an obligation to this country. As Kennedy so aptly said, it's not what your country can do for you it's what you can do for your country and the way the Chinese are working hard and the Koreans Britain and America and the West better wake up I must say um, when, when we were first playing the tune to work this piece of the show out you were doing a, you're still a pretty nifty mover aren't you as well and uh, Ugo our, our producer who is a keep fit finessing himself and a man of about 11 years of age said, <laughs> I, he said I understand that until you were about 55 you could still kick way above your own head and you just did it again and here man he's impressed boy is he impressed you also so hit your own uh, solar plexus there and it was like a man hitting the side of a, a panel truck so that was good too listen you're listening to it it's going what this show is going wherever it wants to go i mean it hasn't stuck to the format the way it's supposed to but we're going wherever we want to go and next here on this edition of my sporting life we'll discuss the 1974 season when you win both the u.s masters the open championship we'll also be looking at your success the 1978 masters at the unbelievably successful time on the pga tour your work as a renowned golf course architect and we'll talk about the Gary Player Stud Farm, in which you've been responsible for breeding over 2,000 top thoroughbred racehorses over the years. I dare say we'll talk about a lot of other stuff as well, the way this one has been going. You, my friends, are privileged to be listening to My Sporting Life with me, Danny Kelly, and rather more importantly, the legend that is Gary Player. Gary, at the at the age of 38, you enjoyed um, your, uh, you know, your, uh, arguably your greatest season in 1974 when you won both the US Masters and the Open Championship. At the time, you were, were you surprised? Um, having not had the best of times the previous year. I mean, you're getting to late late youth, early middle age. Were you surprised that you had another great year? Well, first of all, that depends on how one thinks. Uh, here I am at 78, and I don't consider myself to be getting old because a human being is supposed to uh, live to 100 at least. So when I was 38, I felt I was in my infancy, and I didn't take any notice of people thinking that I was getting old. Okay, well, let's talk about the 74 Masters, um, your seventh major, remarkable in itself, and also 13 years since your first win in the Masters. I mean, this, this is you're starting to set a lot of records now, aren't you? Well, I was, and uh, in, in, that, uh, in that period, I was, you know, mm. second, third, and fourth, and fifth, and had finished in several major championships in the top five, which is awfully close. But in the meantime, I had continued to win tournaments around the world, so I was fit, and still confident that I would go on to win more majors. I mean, I think this one is memorable for people who saw it, that uh, 
on the Sunday, it was an extraordinary roller coaster, more like a tumble dryer mm-hmm. of events. So Niklaus looked like he was going to win it. Then you looked like you're going to win it. Tom Weiskopf, Dave Stockton, Hale Irwin, um, a man called Colbert. I can't remember his first name. Jim Colbert. Jim Colbert. Um, you know, there were there were just a, a numerous players involved, and it changed all the time, didn't it? It certainly did. And the wind at Lytham was really. We're talking about Lytham. Yeah, the wind was blowing. At no, sorry, th- sorry, we're talking about the Masters still. Are we here? talking sorry. about the yeah. Masters? Yes. Well, the Masters, I uh, come down the line and I'm playing with Tom Weisskopf, who is a wonderful golfer, and with Dave Stockton, who kept in the Ryder Cup and had won two PGAs. And we get to the 17th hole, and I hit my nine iron, and as it was in the air, I said to my caddy Eddie, I said, Eddie, catch this, and I just tossed him my club. And I said, we're not even going to need the putter. And, you know, it finished five inches from the hole to give me a two-shot lead, a nice cushion to go into the last hole and to win it. Where do you, I mean, do you rank your major successes, Gary? Where would you put that one? Or are they all equally good in their different ways? Well, for me, the most important major championship is the Open Championship because of the tradition, the history. Uh, the ambience of the tournament. One day you've got a seven iron and you hit a three iron and the next day you've got a seven iron and you hit a wedge. So it brings in the feel, it brings in the adversity uh, to see if you can take a bit of punishment or not. Whereas in most places you play, Ray Charles knows it's a seven iron, give me an eight iron. You know, it's, it's automatic. So here the Open Championship with these bunkers that have uh, got steep faces and... Uh, You've got to face up to a lot of challenges. And that weird and hay at the side of the fairways. Absolutely, and the rain, etc. So many players from outside of Britain, um, yourself, Australian players, American great players, love the British Open. It's always played on a Lynx course. And you've gone on, and we can talk about it a little later on, we can talk about your one of the, that generation that's gone on to design the next two generations of golf courses. Is it a matter of frustration that people probably don't want you to design in the modern world a Lynx course? They want parkland courses with long, long holes and sort of stadium greens. Is it frustrating? It is a bit, and we've designed over 300 golf courses and are very active around the world in designing golf courses right now. And I love, we designed a Lynx golf course in South Africa at Fancourt, which is really, I think, uh, equivalent to that of Carnoustie, according to the comments that we've got from people that come from Scotland. But you've got to build a golf course today, quite honestly. Uh, pace of play is slow. The equipment, we hit the ball 50 yards further now than we ever did. Grooves on the club. Bunkers being raked uniformly. Mowers that are cutting the fairway short. But I suppose that people are wanting golf courses where you can have more speed of play, enjoyment and add beauty to the golf course because most people are under great pressure with the world economic situation that it is. They want to go out and relax and have a good time. But I'm so thrilled when people say to me, Will you design a Lynx golf course? Because that's my favourite. Well, we'll come on to another Lynx golf course then. As you say, you you won uh, the Masters, seventh in the US Open. And then again in 1974, you come here to Royal Lytham um, and you win again. Um, two of the majors in one year. You're, you're winning these things 15 and 20 years apart from previous ones. It just keeps going and going, Gary. What do you remember about the Lytham? I mean, uh, right, I'll help you with this. Yes. Lytham was, I guess... Uh, overshadowed, that's not the right word, it was accompanied by a great deal of controversy. 
somebody managed to say that you had cheated, I think, at the 17th. Yes. Where you were coming down, I think, with a six-shot lead yes. in the open. I mean, you got two <laughs> holes to play. Um, yeah. But people took it very seriously. They said that you, your caddy had swapped the ball when you couldn't find one that you'd swiped down the 17th somewhere. Oh, that's right. Well, can you imagine? And then another man said, oh, Gary Player hit the six iron 50 yards over the green. Well, first of all, you can't hit a six iron 50 yards further. And secondly... I hit the ball, it must have been 10 foot off the edge of the green. There are at least 50 to 80 people looking for the ball. You've got all the world's television cameras on you. And how anybody could say your caddy drops a ball, it's impossible, absolutely impossible to happen. And the other thing is, why do that when you've got a six-shot lead with two holes to go? But we must remember, Danny, it doesn't matter whether it's Mrs. Thatcher, who was this remarkable woman, how many people criticized her? Reagan, who, between her and Mrs. Thatcher, really won the Cold War, criticized him. It doesn't matter who it is in life. You've got to learn to accept criticism. You can't please them all. But that didn't worry me because the six-shot lead, No, anybody with their right with their right senses will know it's impossible. Well, uh, but it, uh, even so, and I know what a tremendously determined people, you, you, people talk to you about you being competitive, but I can tell from the way you've come out, your background, the way you keep yourself fit, your relationship with your, even your, your grandchildren, you're a determined and competitive guy. Did it hurt you when people suggested that you might have cheated, particularly in the game of golf, which prides itself? It didn't hurt me because uh, I know my caddy well, and he's not the kind of person that would ever do that. I just don't believe that Barcaddy would do that at all, out of the question, and uh, particularly with a six-shot lead with two holes to go. It, it just There's no sense in it whatsoever, and how you can have two contradictions, one man saying, I hit the ball 50 yards over the green, and then saying, the caddy drops the ball. Not feasible. Okay, well, look, we thank you for being so honest and open about that. We'll come back to this idea of behaviour on the golf course because there's another controversy later down in your career, but I wanted to bring you up at something else as well here. Um, now, some of this is just the luck of having won in 1959, but it means you've won the British Open in the 50s, the 60s and the 70s. I'm thinking right and thinking that nobody's won it in three separate decades. You I mean, obviously, look, you had a long career and longevity is one of the things that marks your career, both in the normal circuit and then later on in the seniors. So there's a lot of strange records surrounding you, but that's a pretty pretty interesting boast, isn't it? I won in the, in three different decades the British Open. It is. and uh, it makes Sorry, The Open, I mustn't call it the British Open. <laughs> that's right, and particularly when you've taken this great interest in physical fitness to try and be an example to young people to look after their bodies particularly Danny with healthcare systems are doomed in this country America too many people are suffering from obesity and it's happening at a rapid pace it's like a felt fire it just gets bigger and bigger so unless people start looking after themselves unless schools start preaching fitness in schools unless they start teaching them how to eat Jamie Oliver went to America and most kids didn't even know what spinach and cauliflower and cabbage were so what we're we doing obesity is now killing more people or responsible for more diseases than the wars of the world put together it's frightening what's happening. In America alone, there'll be 100 million Americans with diabetes in 50 years' time unless they find a better cure than insulin. And it's rap rapidly happening here in Britain. If you look at the staple diet, I'm just shocked. I see, it, I see it every day. They sit down with a big white bun, three pieces of bacon, butter on the bread, and they're eating all this high fat every day, these high fat diets. 
I tell you, we've got to try and educate the children at schools. But no schools teach children how to eat properly. I must hand it to Britain where they came out and said, from now on, we're going to start changing the diets and foods at school. And I don't know how well it was received, but it was the greatest news that I'd heard in a long time. Well, it's a very long way to go, I think, is fair is the, the fair answer to that. The last of your nine majors was your third master's in 1978, uh, Gary. Uh, and they're all different, especially in their own ways. But at the start of play on the last day, you were seven shots behind. How did you do that? It was a tremendous thrill. I was seven shots behind Tom Watson. And my son said to me, Dad, you're playing so well. If you hold some putts today, you could shoot 65 and win. Anyway, I shot 64. I was out in 34 with a bogey and came back in 30 and uh, hold a putt on the last hole. I looked up at the scoreboard and I knew I had to hold this to win. It was 18 foot downhill. Nobody would ever hold the Masters for a putt downhill until Sandy Lyle did it later and, and Tiger Woods did it later. So I went right in the middle of the hole. My caddy, an African-American, when I arrived there, said, Gary, please, you've got to win this. I need a house. And his name is Eddie, and I said, Eddie, we're going to win it, and we're going to get you a house. And uh, so it was uh, so nice to win that tournament, and uh, what a thrill to come back seven shots behind and win. Also, um, and we're going to hear about your longevity uh, in the when you go on to play on the seniors tour, and you, not for a long time yet, you're still very, very competitive, well into your 50s mm. on the normal tour, but even so... 59, 78, you've won, uh, you've won majors over a period of nearly 20 years. I think, mm -hmm. I guess, it, I don't know about the Hogans of this world, but mm -hmm. you and Niklas are the only ones who've got that kind of spread at all. Woods may achieve it, but it's, it's an extraordinary spread of time that you're in at the very top of the game. It is a long time to keep winning majors for 20 uh, years and over because most people do it in a matter of uh, six or seven. They have or, a golden moment, don't they? They have golden moments and the longevity is not quite there. So that is a blessing, I must say. Arnold Palmer, I think, you know, uh, won the legends of the game, won all of his majors in a, in a six-year spell, was it? In a six-year period, that's yeah. correct. And uh, But if you ask the average American, he'd say 30. Well, they would. Um, and understandably so, because he's an icon. Well, Ameri Americans love their golf heroes. They're having to, um, they're sucking a little bit of lemon recently with the, with the people from Africa, Australia, Asia coming and winning their tournaments. And of course, the Ryder Cup, but I'm afraid they regularly get themselves their bottom spanked now uh, yes. as well. Which is very healthy for the game. It's increased the popularity of the game. It's got a lot of manufacturers manufacturing more clubs. Rounds are down now because the ball's going too far. And so all golf courses around the world are lengthening their golf courses. We're running out of water. Water is a massive problem in the world. So we're using more water, more fertilization, which is a detriment. We're using more labor, more machinery, etc., uh, etc. Et so we've got to cut the ball back because, Danny, there are people like LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Shaq O'Neal, and people that are coming out and that type of build. And it's not long because we don't have any tall men, big men playing golf, they'll be hitting the ball very soon, 420 yes, yards. That's around the corner. In fact, I've seen a man from Canada. He's only, uh, he's only five foot ten, weighs 165. I saw him hit five drives, five drives over 400 yards. So our USGA and RNA, great admirer of the RNA, they are really not looking into the future. They're saying your limit for a driver length is 48 inches. 48 inches. Now, you tell a man like LeBron James he's got to use a 48-inch driver. It's like a toothpick in his hand. Yeah, we so that. we've got to look ahead. And the long this ball going so far is really 
cutting down rounds in golf for the average person. I want to talk to you. You then, you were the oldest. I mean, I want to talk about this longevity thing because you kept playing uh, in parallel on the seniors tour and in the uh, in the, in the, the the normal competitive golf. Um, you're the oldest player to make the cut at the Open at the age of 59 in 1995. Mm-hmm. And I could go on just li- re- listing you out um, a whole lot of things you did. Partially, this is down to, I mean, clearly, you're, you're to use an old-fashioned phrase, you're a health nut, aren't you? You, you're, you are a keep-fit health nut. I am a health nut because the most important thing to me is my health. And speak to people that don't have health, and they will appreciate it. And people take health for granted. And one of the biggest problems facing the planet today is obesity. Mm-hmm. And I would suppose one out of 30,000 people, and I'm being generous, exercise and diet. And that when you think that everything revolves around health, it's quite a problem. Okay, so th- you can put down your um, your great fitness regime and your diet and your health to, is what you brought to the sport, and, and the longevity could be could be argued um, was part of that. Let me ask you about something else, then. It's in the world of athletics and sport in general. People have taken this to extremes, Gary, and I mean um, to chemical extremes. Uh, drugs is clearly a huge issue in athletics. It's clearly a massive issue in cycling. And in it's, sports. Al- almost destroyed the sport. Do you think it's a wider problem? About six years ago, I was at Carnoustie doing a press conference, and I didn't volunteer, but they asked me the question you asked now. And I said, sports are riddled with performance-enhancing drugs. And they were shocked, and I got uh, a lot of big publicity about this. Now people are writing and saying, gee, Gary was right. How did he know this six years ago? I mean, if you look at this Lance Armstrong thing, not only was he doing it, but he was suing newspapers in this country, knowing that he'd done it. If he'd done it, the best thing for him to have kept quiet, but to actually go overboard and sue people now is being kept. You know, our own David Walsh, Paul Kimmage. No, don't you? You sue people telling the truth. There are hundreds of names, hundreds. They tested 104 baseball players, and 104 were positive, and yet Barry Bonds and Roger Clements were getting all the, the slack. The Tour de France, actually, I don't even... I'm a, I love cycling. I think it's one of the greatest exercises for an average person. I don't even read one line about the Tour de France. So many people have been caught, and it's really put me off dreadfully. Well, it's a shame, because this year's winner, although he's got a British passport, is actually an African, isn't he? He's born in Kenya and brought up in South Africa, I don't Chris care. I don't care where they're born. Golfers, they were taking... Be- Golfers was the last sport, or one of the last, to start doing testing, which I'm not proud of. And there were many golfers, at least, I don't know, many that were on beta blockers. Now, they weren't cheating. But now that they've brought in the rule, if they take it, they are. And many, 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 many were taking beta blockers. And two players came to me and said they were taking performance-enhancing drugs. Prior to our testing, I told them to stop. And But where are we going to stop? Two young men dropped stone dead in Switzerland in a race, 21 years of age, overdosed where are we going to stop what is going to happen the rewards a million pounds for this a million pounds for that two hundred and fifty thousand pounds a week how are we going to stop this now i'll give you the thing that really worries me that in schools recently in a top school they just found 45 boys on steroids a young man in america i work for this company his father says to me the coach told my son unless he gets on uh, human growth hormones he won't make the team uh this and with girls i mean it's with everybody i mean it's riddled and how are we going to stop it i must say golf i think is the cleanest of all sports Mm -hmm. i'm happy to say that 
But, my goodness, where are we going? I do not know. But we're still batting back and forth the issue of drugs. And you then uh, put me on the spot in the last uh, bit where people listening uh, to uh, other output on the radio station, shall we say. And you said what my view was. And I told you I was deeply conflicted, Gary. I think um, I think in one way I would like to see a free-for-all because, you know, I believe that adults are responsible for their own bodies. And if they want to put stuff into them that might kill them, so be it. On the other hand, though, my big problem with it, is it to answer your question, and I know you want to talk more about this, is the problem with it is that if you then a 13-year-old looks up to an athlete and it turns out the athletes on drugs they might think that's the only way they can uh, can achieve and I don't think a 13 year old is in a, an intelligent enough position perhaps to make those decisions for themselves and so the, in the end I guess I've come down the side of trying to control it and, and, and doing our best to catch the cheats well exactly and there's so many young people in schools now young boys that are taking this stuff because the rewards are so great so my point is it's detrimental to their health this mm-hmm. is a thing your kidneys your liver uh, cancer whatever the case may be your so immune I don't system, think yeah. your immune system I don't think it's worthwhile to ruin your health for something like that okay well let's move on then to uh, your career uh, in the where your your own devotion to fitness means that you're one of the sort of strongest figures on the seniors tour and I guess I think I'm right in saying you're the only person ever um, and when people start looking at people's records let's have it right you did the legendary um, Grand Slam uh, in the normal championships we talked about that you've also done it in the seniors and I don't think anybody has ever done that double have they no uh, Jack Nicholas and Palmer and Watson and Trevino and Casper uh, they've all tried it and this is something I tell people and they're astounded I say my Grand Slam on the senior tour was a greater effort than the Grand Slam on the regular tour and they quite shocked and I say that for the simple reason that you've got to do this after the age of 50 now you talk to a football player or uh, any other sportsman and see how they are at 50 they finished and rugby they can hardly walk but golf I was able to do this because of my diet because of my dedication to fitness and that made me so, uh, so happy to do it and I've won nine majors which is Nicholas won eight so this has been, for me, a greater achievement than the regular tour. And did it give you as much satisfaction? Because when it started out, the seniors tour, I think one or two people, include myself, might have been a bit sniffy because you, you, you're thinking you're not watching these great players at the very peak of their powers. But it strikes me, it seems to me, that it, particularly in the actual golf fans, they now treat the seniors tour as serious as anything else. Well, this is by continuous uh, propaganda or by putting it on the line. And I spoke to Colin Montgomery the other day where we did an HSBC bank outing. He's just starting out on the senior yes. tour, isn't he? And he said, I said to him, I said, now, Colin, I said, you know, the senior tour is only just a fraction behind the regular tour. He says, Gary, I shot 10 under par recently in a senior tournament. And I think he said he, said he finished 32nd. The man who won, Kenny Perry, went 63, 63, 64. Or I don't know what the last round was. He said Tiger Woods could not shoot lower than that because you can only shoot so low. So people don't understand this. And when I was on the senior tour, people came from the regular tour onto the senior tour, won on the senior tour, went back on the regular tour, won there and came back and won on our tour. It's tough. Is the money good in the seniors tour? Well, it is compared to what we did. I mean, I won about $2 million on the regular tour and about $6 million on the senior tour. So a hang of a lot better. Well, let me uh, let me talk then, um, because I've well, so much I want to discuss. Let's talk about the designing of golf courses, which I know you've, I think you and your company have done nearly 300 of them around the world. You talked a little bit uh, a while ago about the, the danger of them becoming so big and so vast that they become unmanageable. Um, your brother... 
um, I think is a a, a concert and uh, Ian yes. um, is a doctor and he's an international conservationist. I'm interested in it, in, in what your views on this because sometimes I think now um, conservationists are against golf because they think it, you know for at any given time you might have 40 people out on the course it takes up a great deal of space and resource doesn't it it does but remember this that and my brother is was the world's leading conservationist given the award by governor Connolly and president ford and he's still alive today he saved the, the rhino from becoming extinct so today he's an utter shock when he sees these crazy people are paying a million bucks for a rhino horn as an aphrodisiac, and it's absolute rubbish. No, go, go and get a gin but, tonic. <laughs> but be that as it may, be that as it may, one of the things that he said to me, when you're going to design golf courses, remember, and he quoted Britain, he says, the most civilized nation in the world. He said, if you go into London, which is inundated with pollution and cars and people, he says they have these magnificent parks over 400 acres, and thank God there was the balance and the trees to absorb a lot of the, the pollution. He said, when you design golf courses, use a minimal amount of water. Use recycled water because the recycled water today, sewerage in the ocean today, there are probably 5 billion people sewerage going into the ocean, Africa, India, and China. So I think the ocean is becoming the dumping world. Where are the certain countries, we won't mention the names, dumping the atomic uh, waste in? So... He said you've got to use less fertilizer, try and use as much of the local fertilizer that you can. In other words, horse manure, cow manure, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. And he says plant lots of trees. And he says uh, use it to be user-friendly. Don't go crazy. And then he says then people buy too many machines and too much gasoline is used. And he gave me some great advice. And we've adhered so you, to this. you try to make them the best golf course they can be, but try to make them part of the ecology as well. Is that the idea? Exactly. And then when you build homes on the golf courses, to use that particular sewerage water to water the fairways, not drinkable, uh, portable water on fairways, because one golf course can give 60,000 people water for a year, and the world by the year 2025 will be short of 20% of water. That's the, You might not know that in Britain, but it's one of the chronic things of the moment, and the other thing that's chronic is the way that by the year 2050, there'll be hardly any fishing in the ocean anymore, the way certain nations are just killing the dolphins. Can you imagine slaughtering the dolphins? Everybody who listens to this show must buy the movie, the DVD called The the um, the Cove. C-O-V-E. They must buy it to see what people are doing to these beautiful dolphins. What, what are your favorites of the golf courses that you've designed over the years? We just did a golf course in Bulgaria. Strangely enough, in the com ex-communist countries, uh, we've been doing lots of golf courses, and in Bulgaria, we did a course called Therashian Cliffs. They just played the Volvo tournament there, and all the players were so complimentary about it. It was really a thrill. We did one at Leopard Creek in South Africa for Johan Rupert. You play the golf course. It's right in amongst all the wild animals. So while you're playing, you are seeing all these wild animals, and it's just an absolute thrill. So we've done some very unusual ones. Let me ask you a question, because lots of the great golfers, when they retire, are then said to, or not retire, they part their businesses, they design golf courses. How much input do you personally have into when you've, you find some, piece of land of 100 acres or whatever it is and some hills how much input do you have personally Gary into the, into the making of the courses you must remember I'm as much a farmer as I am a golfer so mm -hmm. I understand land and I understand fertilization and water 
So I take a great interest because it's got my name. So I'm there from the beginning of the plans, even seeing the ground, being involved at the right site visits. And I take a great interest because it's got my name on it. What um, is, is, is the design of golf courses, are, have we reached a point where there can be no new innovations? I mean, you can put some water onto the course, you can put bunkers onto the course. Or have you seen in your time other people or even yourself try to do new things to challenge the golfers? Yes, I am doing a lot of new things uh, in golf. Um, first of all, not insisting that everything must be green. And secondly, a lot of the uh, par threes have no fairway whatsoever. You just make it for a pro further back and for a lady beginner, even 50 yards from the green. Stop having to plant fairways and watering and fertilization and then try and have a lot of indigenous trees that don't need a lot of water. Like in Africa, there's certain trees that need no water. They survive just on a little bit of rainfall. So one has got to know all about these kind of topics. Okay, and... uh, if I asked you another uh, final question on this, of the courses you didn't design, the ones you've played in your long, long and distinguished career, which if I had to say, Gary, you can tell me your favourite course and the one that you'd bulldoze tomorrow, what would be the answer to those questions? Uh, I, I love St Andrews, and uh, as a young man, I was a bit cocky. I said they should bulldoze it back into the sea. They spoilt a good marsh. Which one was that? St Andrews. And now I just adore it. I adore it because I was young, cocky, and didn't know what I was talking about. And so I adore it now. And, of course, I I love the RNA. And so there's so many wonderful golf. Port Russian Island is this magnificent golf course. There are so many wonderful golf courses. And also, don't forget, it's given a lot of people pleasure. And this is happening in China now. I hear about communist China. In China, these big golf resorts with houses and people driving Mercedes. It's not what I thought it was going to be. And so what it does do, if you have these housing and you insist on them planting a lot of trees and you insist on the golf course, you are helping to fight this great difficulty, pollution. All right. And answer my question. At the risk of upsetting some committee somewhere, is there a golf course in the world that you just don't like? Well, I can't think there's any golf courses I'd like to bulldoze. No, No, but I suppose you do come. Yes, you do come across golf courses that you don't like. I can't sit here and think right away, but there are some that I think just have wasted a a lot of money and done a a bad job. Gary, you talked earlier on, you were saying how you're a farmer and you understand the land and all the rest of it. You're a very particular kind of farmer, I think. Um, The Gary Player Stud Farm um, is back home in in South Africa. Forgive me, um, I hear all about what goes on in Ireland and England and and, and in the the Middle East about horse breeding. Um, You have bred over 2,000 thoroughbred racehorses and uh, right up to a pretty good standard. I think uh, wasn't uh, Broadway Flyer, the winner of the 1994 Derby, one of yours. So, I mean, is this a vast operation? Uh, It is a vast operation and it's something that I enjoy as much as I enjoy uh, golf. I study genetics, I would say, for at least an hour a day, and I've come to the conclusion I know a hang of a lot about nothing. But we <laughs> had a horse called Broadway Flyer that ran in the derby. It got a sick that particular day. Uh-huh. But it won a group race in Britain and then went on to win a group one race in America at Saratoga. So, And we've bred a lot of winners. We're lying in the top 10 breeders every year. South Africa is a very prominent 
uh, country of breeding horses. Our standards of horses are outstanding. We've got we go to Dubai and the big world events, and we've won many of them with our trainer Mike DeCock, who's as good as any trainer in the world. And we have a lot of wealthy people that are investing in that and creating a lot of jobs. And besides breeding horses, uh, we have to raise crops. That's alfalfa, or in America we call it lucerne in South Africa, and oats and uh, grasses. And so I am involved in some cattle, all kinds of things. So I'm very much a farmer. Do you do you grow the 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 the, the, the crops for to feed your horses, or is that for there for other reasons? For feeding the horses. Right. And I'm up very early in the morning, and I start work before anybody else. And I'm the last one to leave the farm and I'm not a gentleman farmer. I carry logs, I dig holes, I mix cement, I take out manure, I do the whole lot. Is it possible to run, even at this high level, horse breeding, unless you love horses? Do you love the animals, yeah? Oh, I I tell you, if I had a toss-up, what do I enjoy more? Farming on my farm or winning major championships? It's a tie. Tell me about tell me about horses because I'm a person who's never been around them in my life. I mean, they they, they ex- obviously part of the come from the, it's a big part of the industry and uh, uh, and all that. But I've never been around them much. Um, but it, it seems to me that people who who are around them eventually kind of fall in love with them. Well, they say the outside of a horse is good for the inside of a man. And uh, if you see children when they raised up. Uh, amongst horses they get a sense of nature and nature is God and it gives them a great uh, sense of reality of appreciating nature and it's so sad that so people people really appreciate the sun rising the sun setting the stars the trees etc 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 and so it's a special game and this year I went to Royal Ascot and what a thrill I had the best race I've ever been to and there to see the Queen Her Majesty the Queen winning the gold cup with her horse I, I was so thrilled. I stood five yards from her. As a young girl, she came by our school in South Africa. Mm-hmm. We waved good hello to her and her sister and mother and mm-hmm. father. So, And then to breed, I've bred some very, very good horses that have gone on to do extremely well. And when you see that horse win a race, and yesterday I sat on the phone and listened to my horse win the race, it's it's a it's a disease actually, and we're trying to get a lot of young people. I would love to see more young people take an interest in agriculture because that's where our food comes from. And everybody, so many kids think you you turn a tap on and there's milk, or there's food, and we've got to make them realise the importance of agriculture. Um, your life, you already talked about meeting Nelson Mandela. You're five seats down from the Queen. You've talked about meeting every American president. Um, your life is to seem whatever it is about professional golf or the way you've traveled the world you've you've uh, you've met I mean you've talked about the poor people as well but you've met the great and the good haven't you what about show business people have you been around them we played in Arnold Palmer and I played in uh, many TV shows and we met uh, you know from Burt Lancaster to Cliff uh, to um to uh, uh, what's his name the great actor anyway there's so many that we met them all we went to Hollywood uh, we spent time time there and played with them so you know it's a cross-section poor people rich people politicians celebrities great businessmen that we've learned quite a, a lot about it's been a cross-section and 
And for me, it's just been an incredible experience and something that I am eternally grateful for. I was actually, when I come onto the show business, I was actually heading down a particular route here. How on earth did you end up on Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry Davis? <laughs> well, he was hilarious and a great sense of humor, and I enjoyed that immensely. How, but how did that come about, Gary? No, he got in touch with me and said, you know, he had an idea of the master's jacket yeah, and uh, knew that I was down there in Los Angeles quite a lot. And he said, wouldn't you come along and be on the show, of which... I was delighted to do. Well, it's it's it's, it's certainly. Oh, I must admit, when I was watching it, and you know, I'm a great great fan of Curb Your Enthusiasm. When you suddenly hold interview, I thought, hang on, I, what, have I fallen asleep now? And I'm dreaming that Gary Player <laughs> is is in the middle of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah. Um, it, it, well, it, who was the movie star? I just lost my mind, and he's such a famous one that ran for mayor in California. Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. I played with him 36 holes in a pro am. Huge golf fan, of course. Huge golf fan. Huge jazz fan. Not, huge everything. Not fan. much of a golf. No, uh, but is that right? Charming man, and uh, enjoyed that. And I played with so many. A lot of the, the the movie stars were very, very good golfers. Someone, anyone? I mean, you've already named Clint Eastwood as not being any good. Anyone you remember being particularly handy with a golf club? Uh, most of them played yeah. very well because they had time to do it. Spare time, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just uh, looking but here. The most enjoyable time I think I had meeting people were in the villages of India and the villages of South Africa, where I met the most humble, loving people, eating with your fingers, no knives and forks, and learning so much from them. The, If I might return to your actual career, there's a, a list in front of me here of your achievements, and I, I, I could actually spend the remainder of the programme just reading through them. I mean, I'll just we remind ourselves that you're the winner of Golf's Grand Slam. Uh, only five other golfers have ever done it, but you did that at the age of 29. You won nine majors on the PGA Tour and nine on the Seniors Tour. You're the only person to have done the Grand Slam on both of those tours. Um, you won the Australian Open a record seven times. Um, even Jack Nicklaus uh, didn't manage that. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Um, of your Looking back on your golf career now, um, what are the things that give you the most pleasure and the most pride? Back to your professional world now. Uh, no question the fact that we were able to raise... Um over $50 million for underprivileged children to give them a place in the sun. And when you go into China and you see these kids uh, living on their own, parents died of AIDS, grandparents died of AIDS, or you go into South Africa and you see these young black children with nothing in life and to suddenly see the smile on their face. And last week for hospice through Berenberg Bank to give this large sum of money to children that their lives are limited. I, I think I happen to love children. We have 23 grandchildren and six children. I just love a, a, a young child in life. And they never asked, as I being repetitive, but they never asked to come into the world. And when you see a child that is suffering, there's nothing worse. And yeah. I just like, and I must say, I found people very, very encouraging and willing to help when it comes to these charities. It's fantastic. And well, golfers are renowned to doing this. I think more golfers have their own charities than any other sport. Well, let me ask you then uh, to come up to date in, with, with the golf. I mean, you started playing, my goodness, um, in the late 90s, well, in the, in the, you won your first one in 1959. So you've seen the development of golf from the start of the television age, really, through to what it is now. It's a global sport. Uh, I think we're heading to even more 
uh, reach with it. When you look at what's happening in the women's golf with the Korean ladies, and that will be coming in the men's golf very, very soon. What do you make of today's game? I mean, the players earn vast amounts of money. They've got the best equipment available. What, how would you compare? How would you describe what you've seen in today's game? What, what do you think about it? Well, it's a different game, and it's a much easier game, and the courses are in better condition, and the ball goes 50 yards further, and it's harder to hit a ball offline. It's a different kind of, it's a more big business uh, today. Lots of wonderful young men playing the game. It's never been so healthy. Professional golf has never been so healthy. Unfortunately, in the amateur section, which is the important section, rounds are down. Um, uh, it's it's a game that has taught you so much. You have to be on time. Only once in my life was I late on the first tee, and I was late by two seconds, and I was penalized two shots. Um, I walked out of a tent once. I never signed my card. I took one step out of the tent. I was leading by seven shots, and I went. I called the PGA man before I teed off and said, look, I walked out of the tent by one foot, one yard. What's the story? He said, pack your bags, you're disqualified. It's a, it's a, it's a great game of discipline. It's an education as well as a game, and it's a lesson in life. You, you said that the game is easier to play now, equipment, etc., um, you played at a time when there were several of the legends of the game playing together. There was a time when you, um, Niklaus, Watson, Trevino were all competing. We talked about that. What would you say about the overall standard? Take the equipment away from it. Hmm. Um, what would you say about the overall standard of the play? Because if you listen to television commentators, I'm led to believe that we're in a golden age where every player is capable of winning the, the tournament and all the rest of it. Uh, that's not quite so. I think that if you look in the major championships... It was harder for Nicholas to win than, say, Tiger Woods. But if you look on a regular tour event, when we played, there were probably 50 to 60 that could win. Now there are 100 to 110 that could win. So to win a regular tournament, tougher today. But to win a major championship, tougher in Nicholas's time. Do you think that... Um I'm including Phil Mickelson perhaps because he's won so recently and maybe my mind is, is uh, uh, sort of affected by that. Um, who are, I mean, Woods is, is clearly a phenomenon. Stands uh, on been, his own. Yeah. But, uh, and, and Mickelson, the next best of the current players? Or yes. Am I, yeah, and, who were, and who in 10 years' time, from, from what you've been looking, who might be the one who were saying in 10 years' time, wow, that, that man's a great player? Well, if Rory McIlroy goes about it correctly, that's a big if. You think he's that talented, yeah? He is so talented, and he has the opportunity. You know, somebody says... What's your passion? You say, my passion in life uh, is a child in, with a problem. And what's your dream? A cure for it. Now, the thing is, for a man like Rory, the talent galore. He's got to go about get a good manager, make sure he has a woman like I've got who's been married for 56 years. That has only encouraged me to do well and made all the sacrifices massive living in South Africa and having to be away. He's got to find the right wife, and beauty is not the answer. He's got to be able to be intelligent and to find the right wife. If he finds the right wife, if he practices, if he's dedicated, a lot of ifs, he could be the man. Let me ask you an impossible question for which I want a one-word answer. Yeah. He's won two majors so far. Let's look down the line 15 years. How many majors do you think he might win? Well, if those things... <laughs> that's He has the capability of winning six or seven. Okay, listen. But whether he'll do that, I don't know. That's a big order.
Gary, I'm sometimes, I've got to be honest, when people of your age, 78, sit in front of me in this chair, I'm loath to talk about the future too much because none of us know when the curtain <laughs> is coming down. But A, your attitude and B, your physical fitness, none of us know when the trumpet is going to sound, do we? But no, I guess you've thought pretty clearly about uh, your own life. And uh, let me ask you first, well, what, what do you hope for you and your family and for the world looking forward? Let me that be, in my own way, the last question. I'm sure you've thought about it. You seem like mm-hmm. the kind of man who would have done. What are your hopes for the future? Well, first of all, I'd like to see world peace, but unfortunately, I don't think that's possible. I think we've been made to fight, which is a tragedy. Uh, You'd think of all the terrible wars that we've experienced that today we'd have enough knowledge to just get together and work together, but we're not doing it, which is a tragedy. Um, As far as myself is concerned, I'd like to be remembered as a person that tried to contribute to society that was blessed and by a special gift and a gift that was loaned to you, not given to you on a permanent basis. And above all, that my 23 grandchildren and my children and my wife can say, well, I had a grandfather, I had a father that really loved me very much indeed and and did everything he possibly could to make our lives more pleasant. And above all, just to say to the entire world, and I speak to probably a billion people a year, one way or another, maybe two billion when you think of India and China and Africa and America, uh, that I'm very, very thankful for their friendship, for their support, and just the opportunity. You see, people are not born equal. People, if you think that you have born the same mind as an Einstein or the talent of a Michael Jordan, you're dreaming. But what we want to see is the human being all have equal opportunity. That's the thing that I want to see. People come into this world to have an equal opportunity to be successful or not. And we must remember that we are all in the 1% percentile and that we have an obligation, the people that are in this position, to also make an effort to help others that are not successful. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening. And make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify for more top talk sport content. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 